so that we might really change and really be what you want us to be as men in this world. We would reflect something of the character of God in our masculinity. And Lord, I, I pray for the ladies uh, and the families that we have left behind this morning. Saturday morning is a hard morning to leave home. We don't get very many mornings home like that. And God, we pray that you give them grace and refreshment somehow. Um, but God, we're, we're putting this time in, in your hands. If you don't arrive on the scene, we'll have wasted our time. And we just acknowledge that. We want you to make our path straight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I appreciate you guys coming together this morning. I um, just give you start with a little story. We in Fort Collins, we've run into a um, this really unique situation with uh, a man who's probably he's in his mid forties and he's single and he has a passion for music and the arts in Fort Collins. He works for one of the biggest. Uh, philanthropic organizations up there, the Bohemian Foundation. He also works for a local radio station. and um, He does a show on Monday nights where he brings in young people, youth, high school-aged kids who have written their own music, and he lets them explain that music and play it. And, and there's this thing that's happening that's actually kind of circling around our church, because a lot of these kids have been from some of you, uh, where there's this whole arts movement Developing amongst the youth around this guy, around a couple of different organizations. There's all kinds of ideas that are sprouting up right now. And what I want to point out is that this guy's heart and the other people that are involved is to give young people a voice through art. Because right now, when we talk about what, what voice does a young person have to express who they are, it's really not an expression of who they are. It's an expression of what they want to be on Facebook and other social media, right? It's not an authentic expression of who they are. And young people often aren't that articulate about explaining what's going on deep in the soul. But art always allows us a voice, right? It gives us a voice, whether that's um, visual art or music or dance or any other written, the written word. It gives us a voice, and so there's a passion around developing arts for the, for the young people up there in Fort Collins to give young people a voice and not something that's fake. That's what art does. And we're going to take a look at uh, Genesis chapter 1 and, Genesis chapter, and, and a couple of passages from Genesis chapter 3. What we see in Genesis chapter 1 is God is the artist. And God is speaking. He's, he, we have um, special revelation, the theologians call it, in the Bible, where God is specific. He, te- he, he gives us very specific words. But in the created world, in the things that we see every day, right down to gender, we see God's uh, general revelation. That is available to everybody even if they don't have this book. And part of that general revelation, uh, that general revelation is just an artistic expression. It's just God speaking about himself through the stars, through what he's created, through the mountains, and through men. And if you're a Christian in America in 2013, one of the things that you're burdened about is the loss of a Christian worldview and the advance of uh, homosexual marriage and, 
and the sort of a homosexual agenda to redefine what the human relationships are and that can cause us some anxiety. We see that as a very prominent thing. But I think it's, we have to be extremely careful about what's really at issue there. What's really at issue there is not so much sexuality, but gender itself. What it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And the reason that's important is because that's a part of general revelation. It's God's artistic expression to say something to the world. And so when you neuter gender, when you remove gender distinctions, you shut up God. And that's why it's an important thing. God is trying to say something. And so we're going to start this morning taking a look at what is God trying to say through masculinity. Just a couple of passages in Genesis 1. And then we're going to look at how it all got twisted and distorted, and then how it gets put back together again. Does that make sense? So that we can preserve what God is saying through masculinity. That's where we're headed. Alright? So, first I want you to open your Bibles um, to Genesis chapter 1. And let's take a look at some very familiar passages, but maybe take a a look at them more carefully. So we'll start with this written word where where we get our idea that God is actually artistically creating and expressing himself. And that's in Genesis 1.26. When it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So there's the plurality of God there, the Trinitarian plurality of God there. And God is, is just like an artist before a canvas saying, I want to create something that expresses something about myself. So he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. So... Let us make man. And so eventually it says then he makes man male and female because we have a Trinitarian God who has these multiple personalities, so to speak. He's got Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he wants to express that in mankind so he creates two genders. And the uniting of those two genders expresses the same sort of oneness that you see in the Trinity amongst uh, these different persons in the Trinity. And so... God is expressing himself there through gender. Now, let's take a look carefully at what he's trying to do with the man. What is it he's trying to say with Adam and the masculine figure? So I want you to take a look at Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. This is where, this is right on the heels of God saying, okay, in, in verse 18, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And then God emphasizes the point that he's going to find him the perfect helper by bringing in front of him all the animals and having him name all the animals one at a time. And really, that's a, just an exercise in Adam realizing, yep, that's not good enough. That's not a helper. That's not a helper. That's not a helper. And then God, verse 21, caused, causes the man to fall into a deep sleep. Okay, And while he slipped, he took his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, there, there's something really profound there in that verse. The rib that he had taken from the man, the flesh that he had taken from the man, a piece of his very own life and strength he took from the man, he created life in the woman. 
And that's a huge cue and clue for us as to what we're supposed to be as men. We're supposed to use our strength to bring life. Expend it. And that maps right over to Ephesians 5 where God is talking about Jesus as the husband to his bride, the church. And he loved her and gave himself for her. He gave up of his strength. He laid it down on the cross so that she would live. That's a masculine thing. Anytime you sacrifice your interests so somebody else might have more life, you're being a man and you're expressing something about God. So it's to bring life. That strength is used to bring life. And then I want you to take, let's turn back to Genesis 1 again. And look at something else he said after he talked about how he created male and female. Verse 28 in chapter 1. He says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. Why does God emphasize here that there are, there are seeds in the plants and in the, in the fruit of the trees? He's telling them to, that this is how you'll bring more value. This is how you're going to fill the earth and subdue it. You're going to plant. You're going to farm. You plant those seeds and more of those things will grow. And you're going to add value to the world. You're going to, you're going to work to add value in cultivating and having dominion. So masculinity gives its strength to bring life. Right down to sacrificing its very own flesh. It bring, gives its strength to bring life. It also gives its strength to add value. So when you walk into a situation, and instead of being a consumer, instead of sucking from that situation, you add value to that situation, you're being like God, who ex nihilo spoke into nothingness and created something. That's, that is reflecting God. Okay? That, and that's why God made man. Now, we could go into a whole other carbon copy of why did God make women. What, what do you do with the woman that expresses his character? But right now we're going to focus on man. This is the image of God. God uses his strength. He's strong and uses that strength to bring life and add value. Okay? And he does it faithfully. He does it actively. He's the one that chose to create in the world. He's the, he's, he is ahead of the game. And so the whole idea here is that you can lean into God. So often Shelley will tell me, I just need some strong shoulders to lean into. That's what I, I just need a place of rest that, that, that I know you're for me, you're thinking ahead, you will sacrifice for my good, you're going to bring value to the world, and I just want to go, oh, I don't have to scramble and do that myself. Of course, when she's got strong shoulders to lean into, she becomes everything she's supposed to be. Again, another conversation. But that's the big thing I want you to, to remember here in this, this original picture. It is, use your strength to bring life, to add value. God is, God is like that, and He's actively like that, and so we can trust Him. We can lean into Him. And God wants the world to see that in men. That's the deal. Now let's take a look at how this gets distorted in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to cover five ways this gets distorted here in Genesis chapter 3. So you know the story. 
The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? It's interesting that he starts with her. He, he, he starts his attack with her. She's not supposed to be the one that you can lean into and holds the line and has this strength. So he finds his route through her. But he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, verse 3, but God said, you shall not eat of any of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. That's a really important, and some of you may have heard me say this before, but that Hebrew there... He who was with her means that he was elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder with her the whole time. So all this is happening. And this is a systematic destruction of Eve's view of who God is. This is the first time in the Bible where God is referred to in sort of a generic term. Did God actually say? Up to this point, it's the Lord God, Yahweh God. But now we have him saying, this God's distant, unnamed, he's not really involved, Uh, you will not surely die, he's not telling you the truth, you're going to live, he's holding out on you. See how he's just destroying her ability to trust in him. And that's so fundamental to what it means to be feminine, is to be able to lean into somebody and trust him, and ideally, ultimately, God. But... Here she's, he's, he's destroying it and as acting as if God is not in the room. Remember, God is omnipresent. And so he's acting as if God is not even in the room. And, and the whole time, Adam is right there with her, watching it all happen, not interjecting, not risking, not speaking, not giving his strength so she would have life, sacrificing himself in some way grabbing the snake by the neck and throwing him out, the, out of the garden, doing something, he doesn't do anything. He's passive. That's the word I want you to write down. He's passive. That's the first distortion and probably the, the most profound distortion of masculinity. Instead of actively bringing strength to bring life and to add value, he's passive and he steps back. My best picture of passivity um, that everybody can grab is from Toy Story 2. Do you remember um, when they're out to go get Buzz and he's at Al's toy barn, right? And the, the, they all leave Andy's house and they're all tro- trooping through and they're, getting, and they're, they're right across the street from Al's toy barn. And they're sitting there waiting and they're like, there it is! We're going to be able to save Buzz! He's right over there! And zoom! A car goes by like a million miles an hour and hits this pop can and the pop can flies over the top of him and Rex remember Rex he says oh well we tried and he turns around and leaves that's passivity that's it we didn't really try we can say we tried and it's really choosing safety and intimacy with others first over intimacy with God God is often not in a, he's not he's going to not going to bring us to a safe place 
And it's a lot easier to, to get along with other people than to stand for what God wants us to stand for. So we choose safety and intimacy with others over intimacy with God. The path of least resistance to becoming a hero is really what it boils down to. Um, and so what happens is, instead of him standing there and saying, you know what, Eve, we shouldn't do this, and risking, now she's convinced, that at some point she's convinced. She saw that it was good, and now he's got to convince her otherwise. And that's an argument. And he doesn't want to do that. And he doesn't want to stand for God. He's a, it's a very simple thing. It's not profound. And anybody who's ever been married has been in this situation. How do I gently step in here and say, well, but God has interests. Let's talk about what God's interests are without disrupting the relationship. Um, Boy, my goodness, it's so much easier to just step in and say, well, I'm not going to cause any trouble. I want her to like me. I'm not going to get in the way here, so I'll just yield. And and, and in in our mind, we think that I'm somehow serving her or serving someone else in doing that. Instead of insisting gently, graciously, insisting on what God would have, I step back from that and say, well, for your sake, we're just going to go in this direction. And in our minds, we fool ourselves. That's somehow a service, but it's a false service. And it really leans into them a little bit with a weight that only God can bear. So what I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, I'm going to do this for you so I get approval from you because that's what I'm looking for. I don't care about approval from God anymore. I want approval from you and doing what you want to do here. And I lean into them with a weight that only God can bear. It doesn't go anywhere. Good. Now look at verse 7. There's irony right here in the Bible. Then the eyes of, the, of both were opened. Because remember the, the serpent, he said, he, God knows that, that your eyes will be opened when you eat the fruit. And now we see the irony. Yeah, their eyes were open, but they were open to their shame. And their unacceptability before God. And they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is a really interesting sentence. They sewed fig leaves for themselves and made loincloths. Up to this point, their work was supposed to do what? Add value. Right? Plant some more seed, sprout some more crops, and add value to the world. Bring good, dominion to the world. This work is wasteful work. It doesn't add value. It only covers shame. And um, I want us to think very carefully about the work that we do as men. How much of it is covering our shame? Simply helping us look better to those closest to us. That is wasteful work. Now, you might do the very same activity. You might go to your job and work hard and try to accomplish great things, but from a different motive, and you're, you're working to, to add value and bring good dominion to the world. But if you're, if you're entering into your workplace to get the kudos, to get the prominence, to march up the ladder, to get a bigger paycheck, to do all those different things, it's a lot of effort motivated by a desire to sew fig leaves together and cover yourself. And it's wasteful work. So that's interesting. So we have... The distortion of masculinity, number one, in passivity. Number two, in wasteful work, only covering shame. The third one. Now, verse 8. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So now they're hiding from the Lord God. And so the next distortion is there's this tendency in fallen man to move away from God instead of move toward him. Um, and that, that seems natural. Because of our shame, because of our unacceptability before God, we can't stand in the holy presence of God. And so we, we move away from him. And, uh, and ultimately we move away from him in a, a thousand different ways. But, but we move away from him to avoid our sense of shame. And we run away from him and, and, and his authority in our life. Really what he's coming into the garden to do is say, hey, wh- what happened here? And we don't want to be accountable to God for what we've done. And so if fallen man is distorted and instead of dealing with its brokenness by running to God, isn't it interesting that God runs to us in, even in the garden? There's pictures of the gospel all over this garden experience. God comes in and says, where are you, Adam? Not because he's trying to find out information, but he's saying, Adam, I'm coming to you. Um, but we run away from him. And that, that is another part of our fallenness. So passivity, wasteful work, and moving away from God and his authority. Fourth thing, um, verse 11 he said, well, in verse 10, he says, I, I'm gone, I'm, I'm hidden because I was afraid, because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And then verse 11, he says, who told you that you were naked? What voices are you listening to, Adam? And so another piece of fallen man is we listen to voices other than God's voice that tell us what's truly valuable, that tell us where we can find our identity, that tell us where we're going to find joy and peace. There are voices other than God right here, immediately in the creation, right at the start. Voices counteracting God's voice. Saying, no, 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 no. God's lying. No, 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 no. This is the way you do it. No, 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 no. This is what's really true. And so God says, who have you been listening to? And he says that to us. When we're downcast and, and we've been consumed by worldly ideas that make us feel like, we're not measuring up, or that we need to have more, or, or um, any number of things. God steps in the scene and says, who are you listening to? Who told you? Who told you those things? Who's defined you? Who's given you a, a purpose? Who's told you how to get joy? Because I've, I've got a voice in those matters. And so the fourth thing is that we listen to voices other than God. And then the fifth thing... The, the woman, he turns and says, she did it, and blames. The woman you gave me, and you see, I want you to notice something. He's not first blaming the woman. I think he's first blaming God. The woman you gave me. You put me in this situation. What are you doing? This is, an un- this is unfair. This, I, who can be expected to bear up underneath this, God? You did this to me. You gave, me to, gave her to me. You knew she was going to want this fruit. You did this to me. And it's rejecting responsibility and shifting responsibility somewhere else. That's blaming. Abdicating. Redistributing the weight. And... Boy, we can do that. I can do that as a dad. Um, often redistributing the weight 
of what's going on to my kids versus taking first responsibility of what have I done as a dad to create this situation? How have I contributed here? Um, Looking at my wife, if I'm frustrated with something that's going on with Shelly and how she's responding to me, my first response is not introspection. It's not to look and see, well, how did I cause this situation? How do I bear the weight of the responsibility of this problem right now to the degree that I'm supposed to? I may not need to take all of it, but I don't even start there. I immediately go, well, if she would only. That's just shifting weight. In my mind, if I say, if she would only, I'm doing the same thing Adam did here. And really what it boils down to is we were were created to be in this relationship with God to trust Him. To trust what He's told us, to trust that He'll be there for us, to trust in nobody else, to trust Him. And our trust was to be sort of expressed in activity. Give strength. Bring value. Right? Active trust. And this may be, this may be a, a bad way to, to say this. I, I don't know, there might be a better term. But I, I look at the trust that, that a woman, to give you some contrast, a woman is supposed to have with God. And it's a passive trust. God will be there. God will cover me. God will take care of me. And instead what she does is she's, she takes on this active distrust, right? She grabs the fruit. She eats the fruit. She gives it to him to eat with her. She, she disconnects from God and starts getting very, very active. And if you have girls or you're married, you know what I'm talking about. There's this tendency to wrangle and grab and take control in fear and distrust to move. When men are confronted with fear and distrust, they freeze. And they find the path of least resistance. You see how that we're completely distorted what we're supposed to be there. So how is it redeemed? The question is, we know what God is trying to say. We know how it was destroyed in the garden. Now how is it redeemed? So we're going to take a look at all five of those things. We're going to take a look at an antidote for each one of those five things. So let's take a look at an antidote to passivity. Well, obviously the antidote to passivity is courage. Right? But let's take a look at where that courage comes from in an ultimate way. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, I want you to look at verses 14 and through 17. going to bring the devil back on the scene here in the New Testament. And you're going to see that what he did in the garden gave him a foothold in mankind that we're still dealing with to this day. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now what is the power of this? So what, what this verse is saying is that the devil holds a weapon. It has a certain power. And the weapon is called death. So what is the, what is the power of death? How, how is it sharp? How does it attack us? And that's the next verse. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, I want you to think about that. That is a really profound sentence. It's the fear of death. It's the, the fear that, of our mortality, our limitations, that enslaves us. Right? 
So, on an ultimate sense, um, you know, I I'm afraid of losing my life, so I you know I don't jump on the grenade. That's easy. But let's think about something more subtle. I'm deciding um, route A, which is going to take a lot of sacrifice, but it seems like God's in it. It seems like it will probably be the most fruitful thing, but I, I probably won't have route B, which would include a better income, a better source of security, a, a better sense of identity in the world, X, Y, Z, whatever it is. If you pick your route A and your route B. And I'm sitting there deciding, why do I choose Route B? Because I, I believe that I have to have it now, or I'm never going to get it. You see what I'm saying? My mortality says, well, I guess I could sacrifice over here and try to bring good and do something a little different than I would, you know, I could take the, the world's path over here that's going to give me all kinds of, that has promises and giving me all kinds of immediate things. But, but, I, but I have this offer to do something different that's godly, that is probably going to be disdained at some level. But if I, if I don't see eternity, if I don't see that my life goes beyond death, this one has no attractiveness to it whatsoever. This one does. And so the fear of death, the sense that I've got to have it now, or I may never get it, drives us. I've got to get my hands on security now because I may never get it. When we realize, when we, if we can span back and recognize what Jesus did is He came into the world, He died on our behalf so that we don't have to, to be separated from God forever, so that we would have eternal life. He strips the, 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 the weapon right out of the devil's hands. So what if I die? And that's what Paul says in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. When you, when you have a man who has nothing to lose, you have a man who has courage. And so, the cross of Christ tells us, hey, wait a minute, this is, a very, this is not just the more spiritual or moral route, this is actually the more beneficial route. Because your death is really only just an access to greater gain. You have nothing to lose. That's what the gospel tells us. And it infuses in us courage. So that when I come to the crossroads of a hard decision where I might disappoint somebody or there might be a, a path of lesser resistance to becoming a hero or getting accepted or getting somebody's approval, say, no, wait, I can do what God wants me to do, even though that might, I might get a little flack in the process, because that's just a temporary thing. And my life doesn't end at death. And it has eternal significance. That's a really important thing to recognize, that we have an eternal call, that we have a, a place in 1 Peter 1, tells us that God has, has, has kept an inheritance in, in heaven for us that won't perish or spoil or fade. So it's, you're going to get it. And you're going to get a great reward. And that's the antidote to passivity, that you don't have to just live in the, in the terms of just your mortal life. The fear of death no longer has sway over you because of the cross of Christ. And so, if we love what God is offering us, if we love intimacy with Him, if, we, if we're excited about the fact that this is just a temporary, it's momentary afflictions will achieve in us a, an eternal weight of glory, if we're real familiar with that, then we're going to reject a lot of things that tempt us, a lot of the sirens' calls of the world, a lot of the short, least paths of resistance of the world. So you see in Hebrews, and in, 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 later on in Hebrews chapter 10, the, the author is trying to remind the Hebrews, you guys, you're good and saved. And let me remind you why I know this. 
Because you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You, you were willing to be pers- associated with people who were persecuted and put in jail. You, you took this path, and there's no reason for you to take that path if this life is all there is to offer. The Holy Spirit did something to you to give you a broader view, an eternal perspective, a desire for God and what God wants. And you lived that way. You, why would you joyfully accept the plundering of your property in persecution as a Christian? Because, you know, this property isn't all that I have. I have an inheritance. So it's no big deal. There's going to be a reward. There's, it's a delayed gratification, but there's going to be a reward. And I think that is an antidote to passivity. Now, what's an antidote to wasteful work? Well, where does wasteful work start? It starts with me wanting to cover my shame. So you think about your wasteful work for a second. What are you doing to cover your nakedness and your shame where you just feel a little unacceptable? And that could be everything from your work your actual job, to the way you behave, to your relationships with women, to your exercise regime. It can be anything. Lots of sowing fig leaves. Where are you sowing fig leaves? Well, the first thing to do about that is not stop sowing fig leaves, but recognize that your shame is covered already. You're already, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're clothed in His righteousness. You say, yeah, I know that theologically. Then why are you still sowing fig leaves? I have to ask myself that all the time. As a teacher. As a pastor, I think, well, I know this stuff. I've taught it a hundred times. So why am I busy over here sowing fig leaves? Because I haven't yet got it in with full conviction. I still have work to do. I, still got, I have to still pray for the Holy Spirit to do something deeper in my soul. To help me to recognize there's no shame to cover anymore. So stop wasting your effort. See, because when I'm doing all that wasteful fig leaf sowing, I'm not attentive to the world around me that I'm supposed to be bringing good to and dying and sacrificing to bring life to. Does that make sense? I'm not paying attention to that. I'm running off and working way too many hours or I'm running off and I'm working out too much or I'm running off and doing something and everybody who I could bring something of God and represent God to in a very sacrificial way, a joyfully sacrificial way, I'm just ignoring. Moving on to covering my nakedness. So, interesting passage in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. It says, Now, little children, abide in Him. And every time I see abide in him, I'm starting to see, let him clothe you. Rest in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. What a tragedy. Let's just say the rapture happened today, depending on your, your view of the end times. Let's just say it happened today. And we have been spending the last year of our life just frantically sowing fig leaves maybe even even Christian fig leaves of Christian service and right just running around run 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 but not abiding in him and what he's already accomplished for us then what are we what's our reaction going to be if a whole year has passed where we're just running to cover our shame in whatever way you can imagine we're going to be in shame at his coming but if I have spent that year reminding myself, He's what covered me. It's He did it. I'm clothed in His righteousness. 
Then 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You put all your crap on him in the cross and he gave you his perfect righteous life and standing before God. You're clothed in his righteousness. Now if I just spent a year just soaking, reminding myself that my pursuit of my quiet time was not a fig leaf thing. It was a reinforce the, the, the shame that has been covered in Christ thing. Now when he comes, I've been waiting for you. You have clothes. I'm, I can approach the throne of grace. I can approach you as you come with confidence, boldly. Because I'm in, I have reminded myself of that. And we have to have confidence in God's judgment as well. Because here's what the devil does. The devil says, really, really, that's all you need to do is to trust that Christ has accomplished it all for you. That's all you need to do. Certainly there's a little more. Certainly there's a little more. Now, there's a difference. Let me be careful. God has called us to holy living. And we should not just go, well, I can sin so that grace might abound. That by no means. We have been called to holy lifestyle. But what I'm talking about is that subtle little temptation that says, where is your acceptability? Oh, yeah, it's Jesus, but surely it's a little bit more. I mean, you've got to have your wife like you. Right? It's just a little bit more. I have to, at that point, I have the, 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 the truth of God, the promises of God have to be soaked way down deep so that I'm confident that God has covered my shame and I'm confident that He knows what He's doing. I'm confident in His judgment in that matter. He's the one that says I'm righteous with just Jesus and not my effort. He's the one that says that. I have to be confident in that. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I don't even judge myself. Now see, what happens is is that I've been released from all of this fig leaf sowing. I can focus on the interests of God now freely. And that's really what Romans 6, 7, and 8 is all about. And now this is how, basically every one of this is an example of this, but in Titus chapter 2 verse 11 it says, For the grace of God has appeared, listen carefully, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness. The grace of God, the gospel sanctifies you. Because in that moment that you're tempted to go so a fig leaf, you say, no, I'm covered. And now... I can, I can focus vertically uh, in, a, in a clear conscience relationship with God and just obey Him, not for results, not to be better, not to make anybody else pleased, not to do anything else other than be in an intimate relationship with Him. Suddenly now, the grace of God has trained me to renounce ungodliness and fig leaf sowing. So, that's an important thing. What's an antidote to hiding, to moving away from God? Well, the antidote is to recognize that our punishment has been justly dealt with. Let's look at Romans 3. Romans chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 23 through 25. Very familiar passage. You probably all have it memorized. But let's look carefully at it again. Let's refresh ourselves in it again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation. It says in the NIV as an atonement for sin. But I like the word propitiation and not just because I like big words. But propitiation means at its root to put away wrath. Atonement is a legal transaction where you say basically there was a debt that was owed and it was paid and of course Christ is an atonement. But it goes beyond that. He's also a propitiation. So the offended party's wrath has been put away. Listen to that very carefully. Because most of us live with atonement, but not with propitiation. Most of us live with the acknowledgement that somehow in Christ, I've been forgiven because Jesus paid my debt and the legal transaction has happened. But most of us don't recognize that God is now therefore no longer wrathful towards you. He also poured out all of his wrath. So that when I make a mistake, I'm immediately in the territory of, oh man, he's pissed at me. You miss propitiation if you think that way. And when you think that way, you run from him. And you run from his authority. And so, we have to recognize we're freely justified. And that justification is not just you're forgiven, now go live a better life and don't make me mad. That justification is... You can freely approach me any time. I no longer have any wrath for you at all. It's all been gone. No wrath. So you can boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in your time of need. Anytime. We have a, you have a clear conscience between me and you. That's what you have in Christ. And so we can be exposed without fear of punishment. We don't have to run. We don't have to hide. Perfect love has driven out fear. And so now God can be approached. He can be approached. We can approach Him. But isn't it interesting that God first approached us? He said, where are you, Adam? And He he first approached us and filled us with His Spirit. He's the one that touched the leper. He didn't ask the leper to figure out a way to get to Him. And He's cleansed our leper spots. And so we can, we can move towards God, and here's what we can move towards God for. We can move towards God to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us, in Colossians 3. You can say, okay, God, we've got to deal with this. Romans 8, 13. If you, if you live by the flesh, let's, let's read it again, so I got it right, so I'm forgetting it. If, for, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do we by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body? I'm, I'm, I'm right now, I'm wrestling with shame or temptation or some other abiding sin. And if I don't recognize propitiation, if I don't recognize I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness, what do I do? I figure out a way to try to rid that on my own. But I'm not supposed to put that to death on my own. I'm supposed to put it to death by the Spirit. Which means I somehow have to have the confidence to approach God and say, God, here's the deal. I love this more than I love you. Holy Spirit, can you change that for me? Can you change that for me? And if you look at what Paul prays throughout the New Testament, that's all he prays. Can you change this for me? Can you take your objective word and jam it into my soul so that my rock-hard heart becomes one of flesh and I want to do what you want me to do? 
And I see that to be with you is more than to be with this particular sin. I see that my identity with you is better than the identity I have in this fig leaf sowing practice. And so I just cry out. But I'm not going to cry out for God to help me in my sin when I'm wallowing in my shame. And I'm wallowing in the sense that He's wrathful towards my sin. That's how the Gospel trains us to renounce ungodliness. Because I go to the only place I actually can get help. God, change my affections. Change my affections. The deal is I love this. It's not that I'm immoral. It's that I actually love this more than I love you. Now, God, please, please, God, please. Help me to love you more than I love this. But I'm never going to do that if I'm wallowing in a sense of His wrath towards me or my shame for my sin. So, our antidote to moving away from God and God's authority because that's really what we do in our legal just as a quick aside in our sort of legalistic righteousness every group of people throughout history gospel centered or not is tempted and sometimes falls into a legalistic righteousness of their own and it's just a rejection of God's authority we create our own little systems that, that say that's, that's righteous. If you live that way, that's righteous. And, and, and you can name it. And you've, every one of us has experienced to some degree or another. And it may not necessarily be created outside. It could be internal. But somehow we contribute together to a sense of, if I live in this pattern, I'm righteous. And God says, you, there's none righteous. No, it's not one. So I'm rejecting His authority. I'm not starting where God starts. That's what, I, that's what I have to do when, I'm, when, I, when I try to do it on my own. I move away from Him. So the, the antidote to moving away from Him and legalistic righteousness or, or just hedonistic pursuit of pleasure or whatever you want to do to make yourself feel better about yourself is to recognize God is no longer angry with me in Christ. He's no longer angry and I can, I can approach Him to change my affections for this thing that I got my heart wrapped around. What's the antidote for listening to other voices? Well, obviously, it's hearing from God. It's making a practice of hearing from God. I hope you're getting that your quiet time in the morning is a matter of life and death. Are you getting this? And it's not a matter of more fig leaf sowing. It's a matter of soaking in something that changes the way we think. And, and you can't just be a, 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 a knowledge puffs up. Right? So we can be very, very careful to be theologians but not actually have a real experience with God. We, we have to be in here soaking in this in a way where we're having this real experience of God. We're hearing from God. And to hear from God, you need the Holy Spirit. That's why He gave you to guide you into all truth, Jesus said in John 16. To guide you into all truth. So when you're sitting down, are you reading so that you can have a verse to tell somebody at some point in some meeting this week? Or are you reading and saying, Holy Spirit... Without you teaching me the deep truths here and transforming what I love through these truths, I'm sunk. Please come and speak to me. And then we listen to him. We prayerfully connect with the Word. We prayerfully connect with one another in community. We're active in sharing our faith with each other. It stirs me up and reminds me, oh yeah, wow, God's active there. God is addressing your issues there. God is faithful to His promises over there. I can trust Him. Over and over and over again. And then we have to develop a robust understanding of what we've actually been promised in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. 
it's interesting to me that the devil's temptation now of the second Adam in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 is simply a temptation to confuse what have you been promised, Jesus? Look at every one of those temptations. And it's just, just shifting the promises just a little bit. And in an extreme, we can look at American Christianity and look at health, wealth, and prosperity, word, faith, movement, and go, that's a confusion of what's been promised. I have not been promised wealth. I've been promised riches in Christ. It's not the same thing. Well, that's obvious, but there's a lot more subtle things as well. What have I actually been promised? Have I actually been promised that I'm going to have a marriage without conflict? No. Have I actually been promised that I'm going to be abundantly fruitful in whatever ministry I do? No. Have I actually been promised that I'm somehow going to have this big, giant footprint of influence? One in every four Americans between 18 and 35 believes they're going to be famous. Did you know that? Like world famous. One in every four Americans. Have I been promised that kind of... No, I haven't been promised that. What have I actually been promised? The love of God in Christ. The covering of my sin. A place preserved in heaven for me. Uh, Those kinds of things I have to be really clear about. Because what happens is, is I will take things that I haven't been promised. The devil will take those and go, see, God's not present. He's not there. Or he's angry with you because you're not getting them. And so I'm just back in this whole sense of he's wrathful towards me, I have to work harder, and I'm, I'm running after trying to somehow earn something that I've never actually been promised and I may never get. Single people understand this very clearly. But you haven't been promised these things. What have I been promised? Because they're not second-rate promises that we have been promised. They're glorious. They're awe-inspiring. They're chilling. They're what the nation of Israel was hoping for. Oh, you mean that now instead of just one person with blood once a year being able to be in the presence of God, God actually lives in you? Look at Acts chapter... All of Acts. What they're celebrating is God's Spirit is in us. I don't have to go. I don't have to go through a priest. That priest doesn't have to wait once a year. I have all the time. Never will he leave me. Never will he forsake me. He told that to Joshua, but then the author of Hebrews recounts that against us. No, no, no. That's a real bona fide promise for the Christian every single day. So don't be content with what you have. Keep yourself free from the love of money. Don't sow that fig leaf. Don't run after that source of security. Because he's with you. Those promises are real. So what have I been promised? That's an antidote to listening to those other voices because often those other voices are just other promises. And I, and I, want, I want us to just take for a second here and, and talk about being very careful with what voices we hear. Now certainly, um, we know that there's voices out there that are very anti-God, that are anti-what God values, that blatantly diminish God, that uh, are blatantly uh, rejecting God's authority. I want to talk about more than that. I want to talk about the subtle messages out there. The subtle messages that say that masculine men are just dopes, sexually driven dopes. Um, 
the, the subtle message is that that um, I can play, I can somehow feel like I've brought good and given my masculine strength if I play three hours of World of Warcraft. Right, that's a subtle message. There, you can find it there. Um, those things we have to be careful with because faith comes by hearing. What do I hear the most of over and over and over again? It, back to the, the extreme situation, do you realize that pornography has nothing to do, it has nothing to do with sexuality at its root? It's a message. Listen to me carefully. It's a message. It's telling you, here's the path of least resistance to becoming a hero. The right girl is just thrilled to be around you all the time. Absolutely at your beck and call all the time. And you don't even really have to work for it. You just stroll into the room. That is the siren's call of pornography. We all want to somehow just take the fruit and eat it and just go, what's the path of least resistance to get her to like me? Guys struggle with pornography much more often when they're married than they did when they were single. Why? Because of the massive disappointment of realizing, oh, she, she doesn't think I hung the moon. She actually knows me. Crap. That's the, that's the thing. We have to be really, really careful about the voices that we expose ourselves to. This is a classic case, not in the pornography, but in just the media that we, that we, that we consume. It's a classic thing, case of where all things may be permissible, but not all beneficial. Do the movies that you watch, the TV shows that you watch, the songs that you listen to, do they read, what voice are they speaking about who you are as a man? Even if it's funny. Even if it's subtle. We have to be really careful. So, the antidote to blaming. So, the last thing here. What is the antidote to blaming? Well, the antidote to blaming is, is to actually find that we cast our sin somewhere else than, some, than, than this person. We cast it on the cross. That's the antidote to blaming. It's an interesting path we have to take. We have to, we have to take responsibility so we can shift responsibility. It's, you see this in 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul's talking about how his hard word to the Corinthians brought about a certain repentance in them. A godly sorrow that led to repentance. And he said, let me describe it to you. And one of the ways he said it is, he says, in every way you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And I've always loved that sentence because I'm like, what do you mean prove yourself innocent in the matter? The whole point is, is they weren't innocent, so you had to write them a letter. You had to get up in their grill. But they proved themselves covered in the righteousness of Christ. Okay, we can address this. We can go after this. And so they took responsibility and said, oh, I did that? Oh, I'm so glad Jesus died for me. Now how do I do everything I can to make it right? I'm going to take that, that guilt for that sin, I'm putting it on the cross, and now I can focus myself not on self-flagellation, but on making it right. So we have to take responsibility so we can shift responsibility in the right place. That's the antidote to blaming. So all, of, all five of these antidotes are how, we, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. And did you see how every one of them is just the gospel? It's just the gospel. So how is masculinity redeemed from its fallen state? 
The same way everything else is redeemed from its fallen state. The gospel. The gospel. And the gospel believed when it counts. Okay? The proverb, remember the proverb is, if you faint in the day of adversity, how small is your faith? So you got to... So we say, all right now, in a Saturday morning, we just heard a message, we just looked at the Word. Yeah, all right, I believe it. Yes, those, that's what comes. No, but I'm talking about Thursday afternoon when you've got this tension built in your life and you've got one path versus another to choose from. Does the gospel speak loud enough on Thursday afternoon for you to go, I don't have to do this. I have what I need in the promises of God. The gospel believed when it counts redeems masculinity and frees you to give your life. You can be generous with your life because you have nothing to lose. You can sacrifice to bring others' life because you have nothing to lose. And you can bring good instead of wasting your time covering yourself because your shame's already been covered. And so when it counts, in the moment when it counts, when you're tempted to go in those different directions, is the gospel seeping in your soul. This is why you read your word. This is why you pray. This is why you get in community. It's not so you can check a box and sow a fig leaf. It's so that you can be deeply refreshed at the truth of God. Let's take a look. I want you to see this. Look at what Paul prays in Ephesians 3, and this is where we'll end. Paul prays this in Ephesians 3. Oops, in the wrong direction. Look at carefully at this. You guys have probably prayed this for each other. You've seen this prayer before. We'll start in verse 16. That according to the riches of His glory, this is what Paul's praying for the Ephesians, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that's unknowable? The Spirit. The power of the Spirit bringing full conviction, guiding you into all truth, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God as men. As men. And now in that moment I take God's path because I don't need to find Identity, security, joy in some other place. I've got, it. I've got it in Christ. I can sacrifice. I can bring good. And so Paul's praying. I just want that to be there present in the moment of that decision so you be filled with the fullness of God and you can be strong and people can lean into you and people can see God. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that that would be true. For every man in this room, Lord, I, I know I need it. I need it. God, I'm still, I'm still, I can point out, today I will sow fig leaves. Yesterday I did. And Lord, I need you to just work into my soul and bring conviction about that wasted effort and help me to, to, to soak in what's true. Help me be around others that, that encourage me in what's true about what you've accomplished. God, you, I have nothing to lose in you. You've covered my shame. You're no longer angry at me. But God, you, your, your voice actually can change me. And Lord, you, I don't have to blame anybody. I can shift responsibility and guilt for my sin to you and, and focus on the next right thing. My goodness, God, that is amazing. Help that to be 
really present in every one of our minds so that we can be truly men in our homes and in our communities because we want you to speak, artist. We want you to express yourself through us. And we ask for this grace so that you might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you guys a chance to ask a couple questions. If you have any questions, you can ask brothers in here. You can ask Rich. Rich probably got better answers than I do. So. we have to be really careful about is one of the voices that, that exists in our culture by the way of talking about voices is one that is that opposes the idea that uh, God cannot be mocked a man reaps what he sows there's no consequences for what we do so this is a great question this is a really really good question yeah so the question is um, you say that God's put away his wrath but there's still man there's still consequences for our sin so how does that work together and there are and like I said the voices of our culture is that there is no consequence just have whatever you want there's no consequence and that's one of the voices of pornography as well you can do whatever you want there's no consequence relationally or to your own soul Um, and I think one of the reasons this is hard for us is because it's very rare to find a human example that disciplines the son they love right so we know that our fathers disciplined us as best they could for a while for our good. In Hebrews chapter 12, that's what it says. But God disciplines us for good, and he, he, he disciplines us perfectly is really what Hebrews 12 is trying to say. And there is a difference between punishment and discipline. And punishment has two elements to it, I believe. You are no longer a part of the family, and you are no longer you no longer have access to me. Talk to the hand. That's the ultimate punishment. Discipline is different. Discipline is corrective in nature and brings close. This is why I'm just give you an example here. This is why I believe in spanking over timeouts. Is this okay, Rich? <laughs> Uh, okay, because uh, an example that some of you may have heard is I, I, my sister called me one time. She was wrestling with whether uh, what to, what form of discipline to use with her child. Okay, and and what she what she had been doing was the timeout. One evening, she uh, her daughter, who at the time was probably three or four, had spilled some milk. <coughs> Excuse me, spilled some milk and. She, and, and her husband and my sister jumped up and said, Taylor! You know, just reacting. Not, not a big deal. She got down from her high chair, walked into her room where her timeout corner was, faced the wall and cried. And my sister called me crying. She said, I can't do this anymore. 
Because what I'm teaching her is that if she makes a mistake, she's no longer acceptable to us. She has to go away from us. If you look at Second Thessalonians chapter 1, what is, it, what is the punishment for those who do not obey the gospel? They're shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of His power. They, they don't get to see Him anymore. So, what, what the problem with that is, is that, so the problem that we have culturally is we have very rarely seen somebody administer discipline and correction in a way that their heart isn't all wrapped around the axle, they're not angry, personally offended, wrathful. Right? Where they, they could go, well, I'm just a priest interceding between you and God, and you made a mistake here, and there's correction that needs to be, be had for your good. And so I'm not gritting my teeth, I'm not angry, my voice sounds like an NPR newscaster. You know, it's just like, this is the facts, man. And, and so we don't experience that very often, and we can't imagine that God is in the same place. So I, do I think that we will reap what we sow? Absolutely. Because God loves us. Because God cares for us. That's what you see throughout the Old Testament is every time Israel goes and serves other gods and trusts in other things and trusts in other nations, God lets it fall apart. Why? Not in, 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 in anger. You always see that his anger is a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. He's, what he's trying to do is accomplish something in them. Turn to me. Look at Hosea chapter 5 and chapter 6. He said, I'm going to become like a lion to Judah and like like a strong lion to Ephraim I'm going to tear them to pieces so that they return to me and then the beginning of Hosea chapter 6 is let us return to God and and that's what because God knows what's best for everybody is to be intimate with him he's the greatest and so he's always steering us that way but he's not doing it through gritted teeth and with wrath anymore to those who have trusted in Christ because wrath that disposition has been put away so every activity is a tender discipline because we've never experienced that it's hard for us to get but yes we reap what we sow to say that God's wrath is put away is not equal to there are no consequences for our sins there are consequences thank God consequences to our sin or else are hard to get wrapped around some idol something. Does that make sense? Could you touch on maybe just elaborate on a little more on the, the line of maybe restitution and setting straight the worldly consequences of your sin once you repent? Yes, restitution, Second Corinthians seven. So, so I think like if you look at Second Corinthians seven, um, what Paul is is celebrating and getting all excited about there is the fact that those guys had um, had really understood the gospel enough to stop wallowing in their sin and start working to fix it. Okay? So let me give you an example. Um, I remember a time not too long ago where a pastor was inputting into my life about my relationship with my wife. And they were talking about how I was relating to her and different things in our past and all these different patterns. And I was acknowledging to some degree my... Because this is how I roll. Okay, I'll just... You might not be like me, but this is how I roll. I sort of beat everybody in the world to the punch when it comes to the indictment about how awful I am. So then I can end the conversation. Right? So I'll say, I'm the worst person in the whole world. Can we be done? I get it. I suck. I suck. I'm so sucky. And um, what happens there is that I, I have that's worldly sorrow, and I'm just trying to self-flagellate and and pay a penance. And my admission of being horrible is somehow my penance 
And what happens when I do that and do that alone is I'm actually not even looking at the heart of the person I've just offended and hurt. I have no capacity to rejoice with them or mourn with them. It's not there. Because I'm all focused on myself. And so when I, when I recognize, wait a minute, okay, I made a mistake here, but this is, I mean, this is Ph.D. level Christian living. To be able to be in that moment and say, I made a mistake, but I'm casting that burden for that sin over here on Jesus, and now I'm, I'm not guilty for that anymore, but I am going to try to fix it. So now I can say, oh, man, sweetheart, I can see how. It's almost like I don't even judge myself. Like it's, it's somebody like this Mitch guy hurt you so bad. That man, tell me, tell me more about how that made you feel. I mean, I just be in that moment with you, and now I can bear her burdens and still fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians six three. Um, because, because I don't have to, I don't have to be in this world of fixing my sin. I'm in the world of fixing the consequences of my sin because my sin has been fixed on the cross. Does it make sense? Okay. As far as God's attitude towards us. I don't know if you could talk a little bit more about because in Revelation God talks about or I guess Jesus but he talks about how he's pleased with yep. not so much on it yes yeah and I think that, that that goes back a little bit to what I was saying his um God, there are certain actions, like if, if, let's say, the firehouse decided to completely abandon the scriptures as the authoritative word of God. Well, maybe that's an extreme case. <laughs> let's, say, let's say the firehouse started recognizing women as elders in the church, which we don't have a whole lot of biblical evidence for. To get there, you have to sort of go extra biblical and sort of do some dancing, right? Now, and that's, in my opinion, rejecting some of God's plain authority in the Scriptures. So, is God immediately at a point where they've lost their salvation? They're no longer connected to Him? No. But is is this the course of action that best reflects His authority in their life and best reflects His plan for the church? No. So He's not pleased with that direction. And it's one thing for him to say, um, I, am, I am rejecting you completely for that mistake. And it's another thing for him to say, I'm not pleased. Because I'm rejecting you completely has no hope. To say I'm, I'm displeased is actually a means of grace. Right? To realign me into a certain direction. It's a means of grace to correct. That's what we don't understand about correction and discipline in our, in our lives, God towards us, us towards children, is that it's actually a means of grace. Because we would just keep wandering off in the deep weeds. Like a blind man banging into things over and over again. So Jesus shows up in those, to those churches and says, Listen, I'm not pleased with how you do uh, Ephesians, you're working really hard. But you've forgotten your first love. And until until you turn from that and repent and get back to that, I might remove your effectiveness. Because I can't have you continue down this path because you're not displaying me. You're not running on an engine that I have given you. So that that doesn't bring me glory and it's not ultimately going to go the distance. So in order for me to be gracious, I have to speak correcting words and say, get on a different path. Knock it off. And, and to be honest, that's the last, you know, there's nothing 
there's nothing spoken about any one church more than about the Ephesian church. John was an elder in the church in Ephesus. Timothy was involved in the church in Ephesus. Paul writes an entire letter to the Ephesians. We've got that spoken to the church in Ephesus in Revelation. And there is no, there, after that, there is no recorded presence of the Christian church in Ephesus. The light went out. And did those believers in Ephesus lose their salvation? No. But did, were they able to persist in a legalistic and a heartless and disconnected from God way so that people might jump in behind and go, this is the way of Christianity? No, they weren't. They, boom. And that's a means of grace to all the church. Say, see, this is what happens. It's God's tenderness expressed to us to protect us from going off in the deep weeds. Does that make sense? Am I? Okay, good. Can you uh, share what was the reference to the verse in Ephesians about the fullness of God to be expressed in it? It's Ephesians four, uh, 3 14 through 19. It's a great, if you're trying to figure out how do I pray more biblically, I think that's a really important question. Because it, it orients me to what I've actually been promised. We should be praying for things we've already been promised, I think. Because I can bank on those things. Because I, I know I'll have whatever is according to His will. So whatever He's promised is according to His will. So I'm going to pray for those kinds of things. I, I'll take Ephesians 3. I pray Ephesians 3 for my wife and my kids every single day. And it just reorients me to what's most important in their life. Yeah, I'd like him to do better in this school. I'd like Shelley to have impatience and endurance with, with joy and get through school without having a huge blow up or whatever it is. But I want her to know the unknowable love of God. That's, that's ultimate. And God's promised that that could happen, so I pray for it. Yeah, Josh. Yeah. It's really hard. It's really, really hard because she's got to bear a weight. She's now all of a sudden has to be strong. See, what I think she shows ultimately is that God is trustworthy in femininity. God can be trusted. And, I mean, think about it. She entrusts herself to a fallen human being merely because God says it's so. And so over time, God gets to prove his faithfulness that this is the best over time. That's a tremendous responsibility. But when she's leaning into something, and we're all broken and fallen, but when she's leaning into where there's absolutely zero strength at all, none of God's presence, none of the spirit energizing strength, um, she's got to pick up the pieces. She's got to run with it. it. And it makes her not light. Um, do you guys read the, uh, the Lord of the Rings? Anybody read the Lord of the Rings? Do you remember in the house of Tom Bombadil? I'm going geek. I'm geeking out here on Tolkien. I'm sorry. But Tom Bombadil is this wonderful, strong man. Everybody knows he's the ancient. He's the strong one. But he's still pretty joyful. He's a great character. And his wife, it's just, she just floats through life. Because she's just at peace. And there's a difference between a mom who's got really defined jaw muscles and one who floats into a room. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? And I can, I can almost walk up to 
a man and know where his kind of his strengthometer is by how light in the feet his wife is. And she becomes more beautiful. Not because it's a physical beauty. Because there's just an ease about her. She's not going... Do you know what I'm saying? And she gives him the... Like, it's time to leave now. And she kind of cocks her head and gives him all the eyes. And everybody looks at that and goes, Whoa, lady. It's not beautiful at all. But man, is it beautiful when she can just be at rest and laugh at the days to come. Laugh at the days to come. That's what God does. He laughs in derision at his enemies. God's going to get this all figured out. I can laugh at the days to come. It's so beautiful. It gives such peace and tranquility and such source of security. And if she's got to pick up, and, and you know, if we were in a room full of ladies, we would say, I would say, if the plates are falling down off, you know, there's a bunch of plates spinning in your world, and he's supposed to be spinning them, and they're falling and they're breaking, you let them fall and break. Right? Of course, that's about the tallest order in the world to ask a lady to do. But you let him fall and break because that is a, a means of grace, a consequence in his life to go, oh, wait a minute, I've got to be on game here. But if she's busy spinning, 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 what happens is the muscles grow in the jaw and she distances herself from him in disdain and disrespect. And, and now she looks more like a man than he does and he just looks like a boy. And it's and and there's something and that doesn't mean that it's not I, don't, don't get me wrong here it doesn't mean that there's not pain heartache and hardship in being we all will face trials in this world you have many troubles Jesus has probably revealed the feminine side most perfectly in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said I don't want to do this he felt safe enough with his father he could like he could lean into him that he could say I really don't want to do this. But he also felt like his father was trustworthy enough to say, but not my will, your will be done. So when she is able to say, instead of going, would you fix this, would you do this, and she says, I am, I'm, man, I'm really wrestling with this. This is hard on my heart. Can you help me here? And she comes to you like that, then that shows that there's been some strength in your shoulders. That in the past, you've not reacted and gone, whoa, I didn't and, you know, that sort of frantic, well, it wasn't my fault. Why are you mad at me? She just goes, oh, gosh. That's when she starts becoming a mother and getting girly teeth. But when, but when she's done that a number of times and he said, oh, yeah, let me hear about that. Okay. All right, sweetheart, that would be hard. And she just says, oh, wow, he didn't react. He didn't blow up. He didn't melt. All right, that's safe. And that's what Jesus did. He went and said, I have a request. And I'm just going to bring it, bring it freely because your, your shoulders are strong enough. But I also recognize that wherever you lead, it's good. It's the best. So I'm going to submit to that. This is a perfectly feminine moment. And good, strong masculinity allows that to thrive and bring something great to the world. That's beyond sexual. That's beyond how they dress. It's beyond how they succeed. It's that trust and lightness of being. Other questions? Yeah. I think something that's kind of been floated around is this idea of purpose as a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's something that I know I hear a lot from other guys that I've, I've gone through a lot is this, this idea of desire for, for purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's a male thing or if it's a personality thing or what it is, um, but it seems to come up a lot when, when talking to guys. So, um, 
you know, I kind of think that some of the the points that you've made about selling big leagues yeah. um, and how we have maybe uh, another purpose, a higher purpose, yeah. um, that's related to being in God. Yeah. Um, and yet, I have the, there's this tension of well, the the big leagues, or at least the, the yep. actions in this world seem necessary. Yep. And, yep. and you know, this is probably a whole other topic for an entire weekend. But like, how do we? I think it's just the difference between two words, how and why. And let me explain that. I'll do a parenting class every so often up in Fort Collins. And I bring everybody in, and what I've been asking them at the beginning of the class recently is, how many of you are here to learn how, how to parent? And, of course, there's all these parents of young little, and they go, that's why I'm here. You got it, bucko. How do I deal with this kid? How? And I say, oh, I hate to disappoint you because for the next four weeks we're going to talk about why you should parent. And that's a huge difference because you may very well do the exact same actions. I'm going to give you all the hows, but what I want is for you to have biblical whys motivating them. Does it make sense? Because it is the manner that gets expressed um, in your discipline of the child that matters more than the discipline itself. So if the manner is gritted teeth and anger, and i got to do this myself, because my kid's behavior reflects on me. Do you see this sewing? That, that manner creates in a kid a, a sense of rebellion and they just like, I don't want anything to do with that. That's not safe. You're leaning into me with a pressure that only God's supposed to bear. You want me to be your identity? That's more than I can bear. And so, leaning way in, right? Whereas I say, no, why would we do this? Why do we parent? Why do we parent? Well, I don't know if I'm going to get results. I know God's asked me to do this. He's asked me to parent faithfully. I know he's asked me to engage. There's plenty of things I'm supposed to be faithful and work. I'm supposed to work as though I'm working for the Lord. Right? I'm supposed to bring good. I, I, I got, there's all kinds of hows out there, but what's underneath it in the why that's motivating it? Now I come in and I, I'm dealing with the child and disciplining the child, not because I need them to reflect well on me, but because God just asked me, and I'm going to offer a right sacrifice here and trust the Lord. And And now... Um, my manner towards them is very, very powerful. They don't see an angry dad. They don't see me leaning into them. They just go, well, this is corrective, and I think it's for my good. And they can actually receive it that way. Um, as opposed to just rejecting it because it feels like, wow, you put a lot of pressure on me. Does that make sense? So I think what we, we have to get to is, what, what this gets to is what motivates us. Is it fig leaf sowing or is it... Or is it offering right sacrifices to a God who died for me, who, who gave me everything I ever need, and now I have nothing to fear, and then just trust Him with results? Because often the results, in my mind, are all about fig leaves. But I really have to be first, not about results, but about obedience. It's, like the, it's the same difference. It's the difference between actually learning and outcome-based education. There's a very similar parallel there. Am I obedient or do I just want an outcome? Because outcomes are often fig leaves. Rich, want to wrap it up? Okay, good. Thanks. All right. Thanks, guys. Rich, do you want to just thank the Lord for our time here and then we'll have everybody move on out?